Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The end of the year is a time to take stock. And today on Worldview, we are going to take stock of inequality and what happened in the year in inequality. With me is Professor Jeffrey Winters from the Political Science Department at Northwestern, where he is chair. He is also director of their Equality, Development, and Globalization Studies program. Good to talk with you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to see you, Jerome. I think everybody hears inequality statistics all the time, and we're going to talk about some of them, but I think we're going to try to frame this in a different way and talk about what inequality is doing to society. Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of things happen to a society that is so unequal? Well, first of all, one of the impacts is psychological. That is, when A society is growing in prosperity and everybody feels they're sharing in that prosperity. It creates an attitude or at least an opportunity for generosity, Um, generosity of spirit, less of a sense of zero sum in the society, less jealousy and anger directed toward others. So you can imagine when things are going in the opposite direction, when there's a perception of rising inequality. When people feel a lowered standard of welfare and not just what they're experiencing at the moment, but their sense of their prospects going forward, that things don't look very positive, um, this has a number of reactions. One of the first is psychological. So people are more angry. Um, They are more suspicious, um, which, by the way, makes them start to look for answers. Why are things not working out? Studies have shown they become much more susceptible to things like um, paranoid conspiracy theories as people put forward explanations for who's screwing things up for them. They become more politically polarized as a result of stress that comes with a different position of inequality in a sense that they're falling. Um, This leads to what some people have called either polarization or tribalism, where people begin to identify with a group and they say, my group appears to be doing poorly. This leads to conflict between groups, seeing groups as being very separated, different kind of people, not people you want to associate with. And then linked to the stress is actually physiological changes. Um, So stress causes changes in people's bodies, immune reactions, depression, and this then leads to other things, use of drugs, um, use of opioids, and so on. And ultimately, it has impacts on things like social behavior, crime, and even suicide. And this is important. They said, the argument is basically this, that it isn't that corporations and employers have become dramatically more powerful. That isn't what the change is about. So the fact that the wealthy are doing better and workers are doing more poorly is because, relatively speaking, workers have become weaker. And they're weaker because they're less organized, and they're less organized because of policy changes. So it's not just because of globalization and markets. That's part of it. But we've amplified it. We've made it worse by the fact that policy changes that have come with the greater leverage the corporations have and the weaker leverage that unions have, the policies that have gone with that to accelerate it have made it harder to unionize, have made it harder to enforce workplace conditions that are favorable and not dangerous. So a link to the opioid thing is that it's become more dangerous in the workplace. Injuries increase. People on opioids. 
They then get uh, addicted. They then commit suicide. So all of this is very real outcomes of our inequality. I was reading some of the statistics on suicide, and there's suicide in places. I don't really think there's a lot of suicide. You know, you hear about veterans having uh, high suicide rates. But we were reading an article in The Guardian about farmers, and farmers have suicide rates that are twice that of veterans. And that's true in this country. There are very high rates of suicide among farmers in Australia, in France, in India. We, we've heard about India's uh, suicides in farmers. Now everybody's got them. Yeah. Um, farmers, particularly, um, it's a stressful kind of life, but of course, that's not new. But under conditions where uh, people are increasingly on the edge, and again, they don't see hope. They don't see responses to their needs. They don't see policies that are helping them. I mean, one thing thing that veterans and farmers have in common is that they've experienced, in, in one case, violent traumas. Um, and farmers regularly experience, especially we're talking about private, smaller farmers, regularly experience economic traumas. And one of the roles of government, um, one of the roles of social institutions is to try to provide a cushion in times of extreme stress. So what we're seeing in these two populations, but especially in farmers, is that we're not providing that cushion. Um, that cushion has been provided better in the past. Uh, and as it's taken away, people who feel isolated and hopeless um, are killing themselves at an extraordinary rate. And we see the opioid uh, crisis exploding in rural areas, and there is a reason for it. Right. That's partly it. You know, the clinical term is self-medicating, right? And you can self-medicate with all kinds of substances. One of them is alcohol. You just drink yourself into a stupor, and things don't feel so bad for a while um, uh, with all kinds of health implications and social implications. But another one is uh, you start with perhaps some kind of injury that you experienced on the farm or at work. You get a prescription. I don't know if you've ever taken any of these pills. I took one once, and it was absolutely euphoric. And I thought, I should never take another one of these again. You know, I don't think I could stop. Um, and you take these drugs. They're pushed by big corporations. They told us they're not habit-forming and not dangerous. And we find people who then can't get access to their prescriptions anymore. So then they start looking on the street for substitutes. Heroin is one of them. And this has implications for jobs, crime, and ultimately suicides. In fact, Jerome, one, one interesting statistic is not only have suicides related to drugs increased, but there is a sense among people who study this that we're probably undercounting the number of people who are actually killing themselves. It's very costly. If someone hangs themselves, you know, it's pretty obvious that it was a suicide or if they leave a note. But if someone dies from an overdose, it takes an enormous capacity to be able to investigate, to find out what that death was about. The belief is that the rate of suicide linked to these very, very powerful drugs is higher than uh, we suspect. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see life expectancy going down in this country. It is a shocking thing to hear that in a developed country like the United States, our life expectancy isn't where we, you know, our whole lifetimes, we were used to it going up. Mm -hmm. Now it's going down. Yeah. Um, we are, to my knowledge, the only sort of advanced uh, service industrial society in the world that 
for the past several years has been experiencing a lower life expectancy from year to year. That shouldn't be happening, partly because we have better medical technology over time. And mind you, this has been happening at a time when we've actually had more access to health care thanks to um, the Affordable Care Act. So even despite that expanded access to health care, we're seeing this decline. And it's directly related to things like suicide, which is absolutely at an epidemic levels in the United States. People are either accidentally or deliberately committing suicide, and the drugs are a big part of that. I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters. He's professor and chair of the political science department at Northwestern University, and we're talking about inequality and the year in inequality. I wanted to talk about maybe the biggest thing that was driving inequality this year that people would see was the tax cut, the tax cut that went to largely wealthy people and corporations that is driving certain changes and certain accelerations of what we're talking about. Yeah. So one of the ways that the tax cut was sold was that this is the classic, you know, drip down supply side argument, which is give massive tax cuts to corporations and the rich and they will invest and this will result in more jobs and benefits will come to the average person. And one of the components of this particular tax cut under um, President Trump is that there was supposed to be also a massive repatriation of assets from abroad coming back into the United States. And this was going to be a boon to the average worker. And how would workers experience that? Well, supposedly their wages were going to go up and uh, things like that. Turns out, here's what really happened. First, for a lot of public consumption, there was a, a blip in how many bonuses were given last year and this year. Uh, bonuses for workers across uh, the corporate world. And those were significant, sometimes $1,000 per person um, in bonuses. This coming year, no bonuses are being announced. So it was a one-time thing. Um, even though the benefits of the tax cut are there every single year. So that looks like it was partly PR to try to say this tax cut was going to help everybody. But the biggest impact, one of the biggest, is that these corporations are now flush with resources. And there are some options. If you are flush with resources, what you can do, you can first of all invest more in your workforce. That's called pay raises and increases. That didn't happen. Second, you can invest in what it is you do. You can invest in technology, your products, your, your share of the global market. Um, not much there. And the third thing you can do is redistribute that money to the shareholders of the firm. And there are a couple ways you can do that. You can just outright pay dividends, but dividends you have to immediately pay uh, taxes on. So a lot of the shareholders didn't want that. Or you can do what's called stock buybacks. And stock buybacks are basically, you imagine a company has um, shares out in the market and instead of the shares being transacted between two people, which keeps the total number of shares the same, a company buys the shares from the market, reduces the total number of shares, increases the value of all the shares that are left there, artificially pumping up the value, and that increases the portfolio value of their shareholders. Now there's been a massive increase in wealth on the part of the shareholders without having to pay taxes on it because they don't pay taxes till they sell the shares. So what has been the effect of the tax cut? Well, one of the biggest effects has been to shift 
wealth and portfolios upward. So there were a trillion dollars in stock buybacks this year. That's that right. I went looking for the number, and I was taken aback by a trillion dollars in stock buybacks. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that a full trillion dollars goes directly to the shareholders, but a significant portion of that does accrue to the portfolios of those who are holding shares. And in the previous years, it had been rather enormous. So since the crash in 2007, 8, 9, stock buybacks have been one of the ways that this long bull market has been fueled by um, increasing the portfolios of those who are holding these shares. So this was a peak year, $1 trillion this year. But predictions are that they're still going to continue into next year at about the $800 billion level. Um, so this is massive. And our corporations could be doing other things with that money, like paying people. I went on Oxfam's website, and they do a lot of work on inequality, and they were talking just about drug companies. Drug companies, $52 billion, did $52 billion worth of buybacks this year. They decided, yes, what we're going to do with the money is buy back our stock. Yeah. And the important thing there is a number of these sectors, and one of the most aggressive certainly is pharmaceutical companies. So they lobby very, very hard in the first instance for the policy changes on taxes, right? Then they reap the benefits, then they do these buybacks. They knew they were going to do these things all the way along. And by the way, people who were critical of the tax cut said, watch what happens. They're going to do buybacks. And people said, no, 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 no. They're going to invest in America. They're going to invest in the average citizen. Well, you know, the numbers are in. And they did exactly as predicted. And by the way, one of the ways that people knew that this was going to happen is only investors and some uh, reporters in the financial sector actually listen in on what are called the CEO conference calls whenever they're speaking to shareholders in the market and analysts. So the CEOs were saying that they were going to do this um, and that this was going to you know, have a very positive impact on their share prices going forward. But that was not getting well reported to the average citizen. Most people don't own a lot of stocks. That's that, right. That is not a, a thing people are going to hear about. That's right. I don't have the number off the top of my head. I don't know if you do, but it's a relatively small proportion of um, the U.S. population who has enough excess money, enough savings to be able to buy stocks in the stock market. So, you know, a very small proportion of the U.S. Uh, adult population owns our stock market. I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern University, and we're talking about the year in inequality. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what people who don't have a lot of money in the stock market are doing with their money, and we'll talk a bit about dollar stores. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the year in inequality with Jeffrey Winters. He's professor and chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. And before the break, we were talking about um, what the rich did with their tax breaks. They did put it in the stock buybacks. What a lot of people are doing with their money are going to dollar stores. I was surprised to read this article in the Washington Post that talked about the enormous growth in dollar stores. There's 10,000 new dollar stores in the last seven years. Mm -hmm. And the people who go to dollar stores have less income than the people who go to Walmart. They don't have the money that people who go to Walmart have. If you go to Walmart, you make around $50,000. If you go to the dollar store, a third of the customers at Dollar Tree and Dollar General earn $25,000 or less annually. And they are opening stores like hotcakes, 10,000 in seven years. Yeah, it's incredible. So in a lot of people's minds, um, Walmart was sort of the low end, right? You could buy anything there for incredibly cheap. And we have a new low end, and that is uh, dollar stores where I think there's something like 30,000 of them now. Is that the number that yep. you had? Yeah, 30,000 of them nationally. They are exploding not just in uh, rural areas, which is sort of where they were thought to be originally, but now are appearing in urban areas. Chicago has many, many of these. But here's an interesting statistic, Jerome. That number you said a moment ago, uh, $50,000 is sort of the average Walmart shopper, right? Right. And then the dollar store was what, twenty? Five? 25,000 or less annually for a third of the customers, so a third of their customers. Right. So if we want to know what the 50% mark is in the United States in income, it's $30,000. So 50% of our entire population does not make enough money to be an average shopper at Walmart. And so they are flocking to these dollar stores. One of the other statistics in the article was that more people shop for groceries at dollar stores than they do at uh, Whole Foods, which makes perfect sense when you hear those numbers. Right. And one of the things about shopping at a dollar store is there's virtually no fresh produce. So it's crap food. Um, A lot of carbs going to put on a lot of weight. And that's what folks can afford. It's filling. Um, It's not necessarily healthful. But these are the patterns we're seeing in this, you know, on the cusp of 2019 United States. And when you get into some of the health statistics and why they're getting worse, these are the reasons. Whenever there's inequality, there's worse health. That's right. And and a number of the people who work in this field point out that there are really two things to focus on. When we talk about inequality, we're not talking necessarily about poverty. So poverty and inequality are two different things, though obviously related. So a society can have a tremendous amount of poverty, but it can actually have low inequality among different groups in society. Or you can be a better off society overall in terms of average standard of living, but inequality can be off the charts. And the United States is actually in the second category. So we are better off, obviously, than a lot of countries around the world, developing countries. This is an obvious point. But our inequality that comes with the higher standard of living that we've achieved has a pathological side to it. And some studies have shown that if you take someone who makes the absolute same amount of money, let's say uh, $30,000 a year, 
and you place them in an unequal society versus having them be in a more equal society, they actually live longer, they're more healthy, um, they have fewer psychological and other kinds of uh, negative effects. So just living in a more equal society actually has a range of positive effects. Those same societies tend to be less violent, less crime, all kinds of things go with it. So it's not just our absolute standard, but it's how unequal we are that we pay a price for. I wanted to talk a bit about something that's happening here towards the end of the year. There's some criminal justice reform that's going through the First Step Act, and it's going to bring down incarceration rates in this country. Is this a good news story for inequality? Well, I would say it's a mixed story. So we are an incarceration society, right? right. And, and comparatively worldwide, even though we're making some progress on incarceration, we are still, by many multiples, the most incarcerating country in the world. This new legislation, the First Step Act, is important because this is the first time since really um, the Clinton administration that we have tried to do something about the fact that we have created an incarceration state. So here's an interesting starting point. One is there is less violence actually in the United States over the last 10 or 15 years. But our incarceration hasn't gone down. Um, our incarceration actually went up even as violent crime went down. And one of the reasons was because we began to incarcerate people for nonviolent crimes and at an extraordinary rate. So we were sweeping up people in society and throwing them into prisons. And our prison system, just run by the cities, states, and federal level, couldn't handle it. We incarcerate so many people that it has become, obviously, a for-profit business. Yes, it has. Right? Now we have powerful investors, oligarchs and corporations, who have an interest in having more people incarcerated. That's just money for them. Um, empty cells is just like an empty seat in a restaurant. It doesn't work well for you. So now you lobby to make sure that people get incarcerated. So we now have this reform. Um, this reform weirdly enough, has even been backed by um, two of the largest private for-profit incarceration companies in the United States. One is called uh, the GEO Group. Um, the other one is called Core Civic. And initially, people were thinking, um, you know, why would these for-profit, you know, they want bodies in the cells, right? Um, why would they support this? And it turns out that one of the reasons is that part of this new bill, and this is the positive part, allows people to get out of jail earlier. But one of the things that they do is they go into rehab centers after that and all kinds of post-incarceration facilities. And these for-profit companies were ahead of the game and they have invested massively in that. And there's money for them in the bill um, <laughs> to supply putting people into this. So they were all for it. They said, this is more money. This is great. So there's a safety valve for them in this. Yes. <laughs> uh, because really people were scratching their heads at first. Like, why would these companies, uh, why would they possibly be behind this? You know, they're going to do very, very well. They're actually going to increase their profits as a result of this change. But bringing it back to the inequality thing, one of the prices we pay in the United States for a lack of good jobs, here's the structure we've created. People grow up in bad neighborhoods, very few opportunities, bad schools. They come into young adulthood 
with very few opportunities to be able to live a decent middle-class life. They get drawn into drugs and illegal economies. That becomes their gig. Um, that's how they make a living. That eventually gets them pulled into the incarceration system where instead of having a job out in the private sector um, working for somebody, um, they get paid a dollar a day to work inside their own incarceration facility, which some people have likened to slave labor. It is certainly wage theft. And working for a dollar a day means that, you know, you don't have to employ people from outside or you can employ fewer people from outside at actual minimum wage levels. You have an involuntary group of workers who need to work just to be able to get things like toothpaste inside the facility. And all of this accrues to being a very, very profitable incarceration business to run. So one asks the question, wouldn't it just be more humane? Wouldn't it be more civilized? Instead of spending money, taxpayers' money, to fund private prisons and have it turn into cha-ching stock uh, money and dividends for the people who run these things, couldn't we have just had employment opportunities uh, and good schools for the people who got pulled into the system in the first place. We have millions upon millions of people, especially young people, in the prisons. I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters, professor and chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. We're talking about the year in inequality. I know there were some statistics that came out this year from the Economic Policy Institute that caught your eye about inequality. Um, what are they? Yeah, so I, I talk on this subject a lot, and sometimes it's hard to really capture what inequality looks like in the United States because people glaze over with the numbers, right? So let me try to share with the listeners what the Economic Policy Institute study, which just came out last week, said. All right, we have this thing called total income for the United States. What does that mean? If you just add up the income everybody makes, that gives you a big number. That's the total income for the United States. Then we ask the question, how much of that big number does the bottom 90% get? Okay, in 1979, the bottom 9 out of 10 people in the country, adults, got 58% of that number. Okay, fast forward to 2015. What percent does the same bottom 90% get of our total income in 2015? Answer, 47%. Okay, now that may not sound – a drop from 58 to 47, well, that's just a percentage. What does that actually mean? Well, here's how we translate it. If we just stayed steady, 58% like we had in 1979, and if you just still had that in 2015, the average household in the bottom 90% would have an additional $11,000 to spend. Nine out of ten people. Nine out of ten people would have an, would have 11, an additional $11,000 to spend in this country per household. Um, that total is $1.35 trillion. That's how much the nine out of ten have lost between 79 and 2015. Now, the flip side of that is what about that 10% at the top, right? Well, they actually – because there's only one of them versus nine, when you do the math uh, in reverse, it turns out that the average household in 2015 at the top got an additional $100,000 um, uh, versus 1979. 
That's amazing. That's a lot of money that's at a, the top. That's a lot of money at the top. So instead of having 10% of the population get an extra 100,000, which is what inequality has done, the bottom 90% has lost roughly 11,000 per household just since 1979. That's real spendable money on repairs, kids, healthcare, whatever that you can't spend. One of the interesting things we were sharing with each other before the show about inequality, and it kind of relates to those statistics, is what's happening in Silicon Valley, where you think, well, everybody's got it made in Silicon Valley. They're in the cutting edge. They're in the top industry. All boats must be rising in Silicon Valley. And this kind of statistic would not apply there. Right. So Silicon Valley, obviously, has people who are coding and people who are producing apps, right, and all this high technology stuff. And those people need a lot of training. They're in school for a long time. And you would think that surely there, if anywhere, um, the distribution across workers in that whole field would be really something. Well, it turns out nine out of ten of the people working in Silicon Valley are not sharing in the rising profits in the rising sector. And so even in that most advanced sector, granted, they're doing better than most other people, um, but even within their own sector, the inequality of distribution is off the charts. I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters, professor and chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. He is director of the Equality Development and Globalization Studies program there as well. Coming back in a few minutes, we will talk about things we can do to stop inequality. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking with Jeffrey Winters about the year in inequality, and we've been going over some of the numbers. And I think we all want to talk about what we can do about inequality, and it's going to be a tough row. We talked earlier this year, we had a conversation with Walter Scheidel, who had a book about uh, what has stopped inequality through the ages, and he went back centuries. And there were only a few things, and it was cataclysmic events, huge wars, um, famines, famines, uh, things that you don't want to happen. (laughs) Um, So we have, you know, we had a mini cataclysmic event in 2008, but it didn't change much. So, I mean, is there a... An economic or societal meltdown on the way that would straighten out inequality? I mean, that seems... Highly undesirable, but that would be something that would do the trick. Yeah. So one sort of starting place is to recognize that we have different ways of making decisions about distribution. One of them is to just say, markets do it. We don't do it. 
That's the invisible hand. Um, we don't intervene. The opposite side of that is to say we make policy decisions. And people have also associated this with the degree of freedom we have. So markets are associated with maximum freedom and completely controlling every last thing is associated with an absence of freedom. And so the question becomes, how do you find um, in our current economic uh, system that we live in, how do you strike the right balance between markets making a lot of decisions for us about what happens, what gets made, who gets what, versus intervening and saying policies determine also how this plays out. Now, in a democracy, the idea is that people participate for a very good reason. A large majority of people are supposed to be able to shape outcomes that are beneficial to themselves, even if that isn't what a market would produce, right? So we intervene in all kinds of ways. For example, we create minimum wages. Um, the market might actually if we, if we just let the market decide, maybe we would make $2 an hour instead of, you know, 10, 12 or 15, which we're trying to aim for. Um, so we just make a decision as a society. There's a lower level beyond which we can't go. But it seems like the democracy part of that doesn't always work as we don't get to decide. The tax cut that went mm -hmm. through Congress was actually not I think, if I remember the polls correctly, popular with the majority of Americans. Most people did not think the tax cut was a good idea, but it happened. Well, that's right, because um, we are, and this is something I've worked an awful lot on um, over my uh, career, we are both a democracy and we are also an oligarchy. And by oligarchy, I mean power expressed on the basis of wealth not based on voting. So we all have one person, one vote in a democracy, um, but we are not equal in other ways in the political process. And the political process is very porous to the role of money, partly because parties don't have their own money and candidates often don't have their own money, although increasingly it does seem that our candidates are multimillionaires and billionaires, so they can fund their own campaigns. But for the most part, they rely on a pouring in of money. Now, we've spent a long time talking about how a lot of people don't have much money. So all they have is their vote. But there are people who do have concentrated resources, and they use those resources to make sure the political system responds to them and not to the majority. And this is by design. This isn't by accident. We have designed a system, and we have actually even augmented its design in recent years through things like Citizens United, where spending money in the political process is said to be the equivalent of free speech. We've linked it to talking, to expressing yourself politically. Um, and so the valve was opened for money to distort the process. So it actually doesn't matter that the vast majority of Americans don't want tax cuts for the wealthy. It doesn't matter that the vast majority of Americans would love to see a massive public investment in our infrastructure. It doesn't come if the wealthy aren't interested in it, and they're currently not interested in it. The thing that I think a lot of people are looking at now is our democracy, and they see the Electoral College mm -hmm. uh, playing a 
bad role in democracy. You don't get the person you, most people want mm-hmm. in the presidency. And you see it all the way down to the redistricting and the, the, gerrymandering. the, the gerrymandering in Wisconsin is out of mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. I think people want fundamental democratic changes. There's some things that people would like to see happen that's different. And to do that, you've got to go back right to the Constitution and uh, start mucking around in some basic ideas. Yep. What do you think about the Constitution? Well, um, it's a very interesting historical story. You know, our Constitution, a lot of people don't realize, our Constitution is structured. In fact, it was restructured to make sure that um, the wealthy were protected. The original constitution this country was operating under um, was actually vastly more democratic. And one of the reasons the constitution got rewritten was because average citizens, farmers at the time, um, were making use of the political system to make sure that more debt burdens and other things were placed on the wealthy. This led to a crisis um, and that crisis ended up with a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. And one of the things that the various parties to that uh, convention agreed on, um, and this is the term they used, was that there is an excess of democracy in the United States. The many are using the political process for things like redistribution and benefiting themselves. Um, And it's hurting a very small number of rich and creditors. So they gathered in part to correct that. They created a Senate. They made the House of Representatives weaker. They took powers away from the states um, so that things like bankruptcy could not be determined by the states anymore. States could not print money anymore. And the reason they were printing money was to make debts lighter on the average citizen. The legislatures in those states were being very responsive. So they refashioned the system and created a presidency and a Supreme Court. And all of that pyramidal structure was built to make sure that it would be very hard politically to be redistributing in the United States. So we're stuck now with a system that is built to be unequal, unequal outcomes economically. It's built for that. If we're going to change that substantially, we're going to have to revisit some fundamental elements of our political system. How do you do that short of a constitutional convention? Or uh, there are people who are very eager for a constitutional convention and are working very hard for it. It's ALEC and people who are geared up about uh, balanced budgets amendments and libertarian Mm -hmm. philosophies. Mm -hmm. They want to have one and... You know, it seems like the people who have brought us inequality would be in the driver's seat in a constitutional convention. Well, be uh, careful what you hope for um, uh, because you pull a constitutional convention together and precisely these kinds of forces could be ascendant. So do you want to fiddle with it? Um, The answer would be perhaps only under a situation where the political groundwork, progressive political groundwork had already been done so that – You don't start with the convention, you end with the convention. You start with political change in communities and in cities and in states and you produce movements 
and organizations and leaders. And you start there. And only then, when you've really got a strong um, movement in place, do you sit down and dare to tinker with such a document as a constitution and the basic institutions of the country. It's interesting that the document is very, very revered by uh, a lot of mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices, the Federalist mm-hmm. Society, the, all these people, they revere it for a reason. Sure. You know, on the one hand, it is a very inspiring structure, very inspiring document. It's been emulated around the world by many, many um, countries and struggling peoples. It speaks beautifully to freedom, uh, humanity, um, all those things. What tends to get less attention is how oligarchically it's structured. And folks who know that part of it and value that part of it are very tuned in and defensive of those elements and, in fact, would like to expand them. Um, Our constitution should be a living constitution. We've had a long, long time to see how it plays out in terms of equalities and outcomes for our citizens. Um, And I don't think we should look at it as some sort of religious text or something that has dropped from the heavens. It's a human product. It's a product of our history, and it stands to be seen um, in the years and decades ahead whether um, we have to make changes. But certainly the political process comes before those fundamental changes, actually. What do you smell in the political process these days? Because we had this Occupy Wall Street movement that Mm -hmm. really put inequality on the map and gave it a voice and, and some kind of public presence didn't have any goals. It didn't have any political movement stuff to it. It was just a, a, an Occupy thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've got had an election that has some elements that are interesting in it, but, you know, it doesn't seem movement-oriented yet. You know what? Occupy, I think, gets a kind of a bad rap um, because it didn't appear initially to have achieved much. And it, you know, it fell apart. But we have to re- re- understand that Having candidates like Bernie Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren, and others who are coming forward now and talking about inequality, um, who are talking about the power of Wall Street, everyone seems to say the system is rigged, but the way they understand it being rigged is very, very different, right? But the system is rigged in the ways I've just described in favor of the wealthy, and we are seeing people who for the first time in many, many decades, maybe 80 years in the United States are really talking about um, how the system is unequal um, for the average American and how corporations are in terms of power, in terms of concentration of wealth, historically out of proportion. So Occupy mattered. It set in motion something. And the biggest fight, people argue, is not really on the Republican side. The biggest fight is within the Democratic Party. Will the Democratic Party stop trying to be a shadow of the Republican Party, which is essentially corporate owned? Um, Will they go back to being for average Americans and average workers? Uh, That's what's up for grabs right now. Well, the Republican Party still gets a whole lot of votes in elections. They're yes. doing things that people are voting for. Uh, immigration, I was mm-hmm. reading a, that one of the articles we read for this program was a study by several Harvard scholars who talked about how if you talk about immigration enough and gin up enough fear about immigration, you stop people's 
tendency to want redistribution of wealth, that people don't want to be generous because these people are taking our stuff. Well, that's right. So we have to link two things together. One is that the Democratic Party, in essence, abandoned the average American and the average worker and tried to buy into the sold to Wall Street game. I mean, they definitely did that. But as part of it, abandoning the average person, um, part of what had before been the Democratic Party's base began under the new inequality, tribal, looking for someone to blame circumstances. They weren't getting any answers or responsiveness on the Democratic side, but the Republicans were talking to them in a way that was making sense. They were saying, um, this is about people taking your jobs. Tucker Carlson says they are dirty people flowing in. They are portrayed as others. So as this sense of zero-sum anger, holding on to what privileges you have, as that is getting ramped up by the Republicans, they're drawing voters. Here's the irony of it. It's not that the Republicans are actually making any of these folks' lives better. Arguably, they're making them worse. This is the, you know, what's going on in Kansas question. Why do people seem to vote against their own material interests, their bottom line of their household? And one of the answers is they are directed toward other things to get agitated about. They're looking for who to blame. That's basically black and brown people and people who are different from them, religion, ethnicity, and so on. And so we have to remember the base for the Republicans and Trump are agitated white people overwhelmingly. Um, that's who the Democratic Party has lost. And it hasn't been won on the Republican side by selling gain. Um, it's been won by selling difference and anger. Do you see the movement that can get those people back? Uh, you know, you read a lot of things in, in studies that there is a small group of people who go back and forth. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, it doesn't seem like much, though. Well, the kinds of shifts we're talking about where the basically European-American-based population, that shift has been big and to the right. Um, and to the Republican Party. But I, I actually think you don't have to have that much fluidity in terms of these shifts to change the outcomes in the United States uh, electorally. Now, of course, gerrymandering and all those other things that make it harder for majorities to win and actually get seats, that has to be addressed. But, you know, we don't need a shift of 30% of the U.S. population voting very, very differently. 10% could usher in a very different era. So the job is there for community leaders and others, activists, people at every level of our system to formulate the ideas, to understand and diagnose the problems, first of all, and then to put real choices and options out there for people that they can see are going to move them forward. I think that's possible. I, I don't think the anger and the hatred in the U.S. system today is permanent. It's been ginned up. It's been created. And it, there are other alternatives. It's up to us to create them and make them happen. Or we could have a catastrophic crash that would provide that opportunity. Well, okay, yes, catastrophic crashes can do that. But remember that fascism is as possible in the aftermath of a catastrophic crash as something positive. And I don't think history has been, I mean, you do get a leveling in these cataclysms, but they also tend to be associated with very devastating 
massive prices that people pay, humanity pays in terms of life, war, destruction, and, and so on. So if we could do it without a cataclysm, that might be preferable. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Winters is professor and chair of political science at Northwestern University. He's director of the Equality, Development, and Globalization Studies Program. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the year in inequality. It's a pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Worldview will have our film contributor Milos Stalik in, and his end of the year contribution is going to be his top 10. We will go through it religiously with a fine tooth comb, and Milos Stalik will tell you what the 10 finest films of the year are for the first time. He's never really done a top 10 and put a number to it, but he will tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.